This is the Heritage Radio News, bringing you top food stories from down the street and around the world with your Heritage Radio News team, Erica Wides, Patrick Martins, Jack Kinsley on sports, and Mike Edison on weather. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network News. I'm Erica Wides, co-anchoring with Patrick Martins. Hi, Erica. Hi, Patrick. Today is May 19th, 2016, I believe. Still 16. Still 16. And joining us today, we have Mike Edison on weather and Jack Inslee on sports. And our top stories this week, beer gets a makeover. Is beef the new tuna? And why vanilla beans aren't just plain vanilla anymore? And Jack, what do you got for us from the world of sports? I am going to tell you who the real Chef Curry is. It's not who you think later on the sports report. Oh, I'm intrigued. And uh, Mike Edison, what's happening in L.A. with the weather? Well, let me tell you something. The weather in Los Angeles is so depressing, I thought I might do a traffic report instead. Because, <laughs> you know, because, you know, the traffic in L.A. is so sunshiny and happy. Right. You can't see the weather for the smog, huh? Yeah, it's that bad. All right. Well, now for our top story of the week. While flashy golden-hued saffron may get all the attention as the world's most expensive spice, coming in at a close second is old reliable vanilla, the world's most popular ice cream flavor. Well, hold on to your drippy cone, people, because that scoop of plain vanilla is about to get a lot more expensive. Most of the world's vanilla supply comes from Madagascar, followed by Tahiti and Mexico. Pastry chefs and bakers worldwide pay top dollar for pure vanilla, but climate change and unstable weather patterns this year in Madagascar have deeply affected the island nation's vanilla harvest. A good year sees a crop of about 2,200 tons of vanilla beans from Madagascar, but in 2015, between 1,400 and 1,550 were produced, nearly in half, and vanilla prices rose by almost 150%. Vanilla is the product of the seeds of the vanilla bean, or more accurately, the vanilla pod. The pods grow inside the vanilla plant's flower. The beans are hand-pollinated from the large tropical flowers, which open for just a part of one day, once per season. If pollination doesn't occur at that exact moment, no vanilla bean or pod is produced. And even if things do work out, the pods have to be cured for three to six months in the sun during the day, and then held in a box at night. Sounds like Mike, actually. This is all very labor-intensive, which accounts for its normally high price tag. Ice cream maker Charlie Truyer of the British ice cream brand Oppo told the Guardian newspaper, The price has doubled in the last month. We were paying around $40 a liter in February, but now it's around $85 a liter. And it won't be just ice cream eaters feeling the pain in their wallets. Vanilla is used in everything from baked goods to soft drink formulas, perfume, health and beauty products, cleaning products, and of course, those horrible scented candles in every spa and salon. That's actually one thing I'm really glad to see go. Well, I never knew vanilla was decreasing so much. So I know the Museum of Food and Drink's first exhibit is on vanilla and talks about how uh, vanilla is such a popular flavor, most popular but, flavor but in not the world. wild. It's mostly the vanilla most people know is from a science lab in New Jersey. So uh, what are the substitutes mm. for vanilla? Well, there's vanillin. I think, you know, cheap artificial vanilla flavor is actually called vanillin, and that's a byproduct of paper making. So uh, that's not so appealing to me. And it's, it's nothing like the real thing. I still use papyrus. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby, Patrick. Well, thanks for that very insightful story, Erica. You're welcome. Um, Well, in other news, American beer icon Budweiser isn't owned by an American company anymore, but that doesn't stop it from peddling red, white, and blue patriotism served cold. 
A few days ago, Budweiser's parent company, Anheuser-Busch InBev, announced plans to rename its top-selling beer in the United States to, wait for it, America. Which America? South, Central, or North is unclear, but they are currently lobbying the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau so that they can change their packaging in time for the Summer Olympics in Brazil. The packaging of America, if approved, will run from May 23rd through election season in November. But the labels don't stop there. They include phrases like e pluribus unum and from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me, as well as indivisible since 1776. The new America advertising campaign joins other Budweiser ads that lambaste local smaller production microbrews and the people who drink them. These marketing strategies are happening at the same time that InBev and Sab Miller are working to merge, creating a single behemoth that will supply 30% of the world's beer. InBev is continuing to reshuffle its assets as the corporation seeks international regulatory approval for its $106 billion merger. Reuters reports that the company is proposing the sale of its Eastern European holdings in an effort to woo the European Union's antitrust regulators. If they succeed, there could be less beer diversity around the world. As InBev spins a connection between a massive internationally held corporation with America itself, while simultaneously campaigning against smaller breweries, I can't help but wonder... Because that doesn't really sound American at all, Erica, to me. No, it doesn't sound that way to me either. In a country that prides itself on entrepreneurship, eating up small breweries is uh, not really the idea. And well, also, in fair way, fairness to them, they are also buying up a lot of I know, them. they're buying up all yeah. the small craft But they're also coming out against them at the same time. Yeah, in ads on the Super Bowl, no less. It sounds a little desperate and pathetic, frankly, to me, <laughs> and uh, trying to cash in on patriotism. And also using lyrics from a song written by Woody Guthrie, notorious socialist and social agitator. I, somebody wasn't doing their homework there, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, did they did you, you know, even bother to look up who wrote the song and that the song is actually a socialist anthem mm-hmm. that Have you I seen was the election on? cycle it all seems pretty american to me well <laughs> i yes it does exactly pandering right to uh, you know who with the bad hair anyway thanks patrick that was a fascinating story and kind of sickening and depressing at the same time um anyway we're gonna take a uh, break and when we come back something much more fun our fast food minute Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network News, broadcasting live for the first time from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, here on the Heritage Radio Network. And now for our Fast Food Minute of the Week. First, we're going to Rachel, the producer. What do you got, Rachel? All right. Well, uh, the phrase pop-up restaurant brings to mind a place that's put together overnight. This is especially the case with Paris's newest pop-up, Krogan, owned by none other than the king of DIY, Ikea. He'll be featuring amateur chefs challenged to make cheap three-course meals, all less than $12 per customer, and will benefit France's anti-poverty relief charity. Meatballs aside, this isn't Ikea's first venture into the food industry. Last year, they opened a bed and breakfast that ran for literally two days, 
just about as much time as it takes to assemble, sleep in, and then disassemble a mom bed. <laughs> and then <laughs> throw it away when it falls apart, huh? Wow. There goes Ikea as a sponsor. Huh? I'm holding tight to my mom bed. <laughs> my chair just broke. My Ikea chair. <laughs> and Jack Inslee, what have you got for us? Well, Erica, you know what they say. You wear what you eat. No, that's, that's not what anybody actually says. But with the amount of food-related shoes that Nike's been putting out lately, that may very well be the case with kids these days. So recently, Nike released a chicken and waffles-inspired shoe with what looks like maple syrup dripping from the Nike logo. There's also a Starbucks-inspired Nike shoe now that looks like a cup of coffee with creamer dropped into it. But most ridiculous is the new Kyrie Irving Nike collaborative shoe, which was made with Krispy Kreme donuts. The shoes were actually released with a donut sneaker truck. So what does this mean? Are we going to see Patrick Martins wearing ham vans? Or Erica, will you rock some kale keds? Or Mike... What about some poutine, poutine pumas? What do you think, Mike? <laughs> well, only time will tell, guys. They'd go good with a nice ice-cold can of America. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. I would only wear them if they paid me to wear them. Didn't Charlie Chaplin used to eat his shoes? I mean, they should just serve real food in there. Exactly. Werner Herzog ate a shoe. I would rather wrap my feet in actual kale. I'm Patrick Martins. What do you have for us? Well, this weekend, the Italian city of Naples wants the world to know that it is the heart and soul of pizza. And to prove it, 100 chefs are teaming up for 11 hours to make the planet's longest pizza. Two kilometers, to be exact. A pizza was born in Naples, <laughs> says Alessandro Marinacci. But the record was made in Milan. Last year, Milan's pizza clocked in at just over 1.5 kilometers. Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food in Italy, would argue, of course, that America should be in the biggest is best game, and not the Italians, who invented the pizza pie in Naples in the 16th century. I wonder, will the two-kilometer pizza also be consumed in a single bite, Mm, Erica? Sounds like some size issues there in Naples. Anyway... Oh, what's that guy? What's that smell? Do you guys smell that? Oh, no, it's just cow burp. Nothing at all. So it seems that more than a third of the methane generated globally comes from bovine gas, particularly belching. I'd always thought it was cow farts that cause global warming, but it turns out it's their burps. Either way, this is a serious problem, given that methane is 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at trapping heat. But a Danish Danish research team is testing out an herbal solution for the gassy problem. No, not weed. Greek oregano. Oregano oil has a mild antimicrobial called Carvacrol, which can kill some of the bacteria in the cow's rumen that produce methane, explains Kai Grevson, a senior researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark. Another perk of the oregano oil treatment? More milk. A cow loses a lot of energy in releasing all of this methane, explains Grevson. By blocking the bacteria, the energy that doesn't get lost can be used by the cow to produce more milk. All right, that's our Fast Food Minute for the week, sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Coming up after the break, a follow-up about the tuna crisis in Japan, and this time there may be some semi-good news. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network News from Bushwick, Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Erica Wides, your host, along with Patrick Martins, our co-anchor. Now, in other developed countries around the world, the population of Japan is aging. Basically, the world's population in the developing part of the world is aging. A declining birth rate coupled with high longevity rates means that there are a lot more older folks and fewer young ones. And for Japan, that means a shift in dietary habits. 
The older generation of Japanese raised on a seafood-heavy diet is eating less overall as they age and die off, and the younger generation prefers a Western, more meat-heavy diet than their elders. The Japanese are also eating less fish overall, more specifically, less tuna. This is, of course, great news for the tuna, especially the bluefin and yellowfin, the species most highly prized for sushi. As we reported recently on this show, tuna populations in the Pacific have seen a plummet of 97% of their population since the 1960s, leaving the species teetering on the brink of extinction. According to new figures from the UN Food and Ag Organization, the amount of raw and frozen tuna brought into the country, either by imports or its own fishermen, dropped by 3% in 2015. While this isn't nearly enough to save the threatened tuna, it does represent a significant dietary shift for the younger generation of Japanese. Still, it remains to be seen if Japan can maintain its status as one of the world's healthiest populations. Interestingly, the Japanese didn't consider the tuna a delicacy or even a desirable edible fish at all until they were first introduced to eating meat in the early years of the 20th century. The dark and oily flesh of the tuna was seen as smelly, greasy, and distasteful and was used only to feed prisoners and the very poor. Meat-eating wasn't even a part of the Japanese diet at all until contact with Western ways was made in the early 1900s, and only this was the tuna. And only this was the tuna seen as a prized edible fish species. I'm sorry, only then was the tuna seen as a prized edible fish species. Then it only took 100 years or so to eat it to the brink of extinction. Says Akiko Katayama, host of Japan Eats here on Heritage Radio Network, it is true that the fish-based traditional Japanese diet is shifting towards the Western-style meat-based diet. It remains to be seen whether or not the Japanese will keep losing the habit of eating fish, considering how the Western countries suddenly became aware of the health benefits of a fish-based diet. Akiko offers us an alternative. Slice a very ripe avocado, close your eyes, and eat it with soy and wasabi. It really tastes like bluefin tuna. You know what? I have to agree with her on that one, Patrick. Well, no, that is, uh, she's right. She's She's right. right. Well, they are an island nation, so it is funny to see new foods come to the islands who rely so much on fish. Well, speaking of consuming different things, Mike, you've had a steady uh, consumption of smog today. What's going on in Los Angeles? Yeah, we can hear you breathing. (laughs) Smog and medical marijuana. Well, they say, you know, on a clear day you can see forever, but a clear day... Is that, is, that, is that the weather cue? Yes. <laughs> you know, a, a clear day in Los Angeles is about as common as a transgender vegan hip hop star at a Donald Trump rally. I'm, uh, I'm, re- wow. I'm reporting from Venice Beach today where it is so smoggy, you can't even see the famed Hollywood sign for the amount of dirt in the air. And most days, from where I'm standing, you can make it out above the rest of the city and get a glimpse of the Griffith Observatory. But today, just forget about it. It's just gray particulate hanging in the air like a marijuana cloud at a fish concert. May gray and June gloom is what they call it here. Of course, smog here in Los Angeles is nothing new. It's just something like traffic jams and crazy people. It's things that Los Angeles have come to accept as normal. What is relatively new, however, is the drought of the last four years that has seen celebrities being fined for watering their lawns. Recently, this year, there was heavy uh, rain and a snowy winter thanks to El Nino, and it's helped uh, reservoir levels come up. But Felicia Marcus, the chairman of the California State Water Board, has warned this is not a time to start using water like it's 1999. Man, she could not, she could not resist the Prince reference. Mm-hmm. This year simply could be a punctuation mark in a mega drought. And Senator Dianne Feinstein agreed, she just said, this week there are a few 
appears to be no immediate end in sight. The drought is going to continue. Governor Jerry Brown made it clear that conservation must continue. With climate change, he said in a statement, we know that drought is becoming a regular occurrence and water conservation is part of our everyday lives. Listen, guys, I'm telling you, I have no idea why anyone would want to live here. Every day in Los Angeles is weird enough without a new set of wacky weather dictates that have created a brand new phenomenon called drought shaming. This is where celebrities who have ignored the conservation rules are outed publicly. And maybe you remember at the top of the list last year, no surprise, was the Kardashian family. This is they needed one more reason to scream for attention. Anyway, droughts in L.A. don't seem like anything new. I mean, hasn't anyone ever seen the movie Chinatown? But, but they just announced today that they were lifting the water restrictions in California. Well, I would, I'm not sure it's going to happen that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've been lulled into a sense, false sense of security by the wacky weather called El Nino. Huh. Well, Mike, I'm worried about you coming back to the East Coast alive. You were getting yelled at for uh, walking on the wrong <laughs> side of the sidewalk and for trying to cross the street. And now it's, here it's you're a, steady It's a whole new smoke. kind of crazy out here, Patrick. They, they, <laughs> it's, it's next level nuts. You've also just alienated the entire listenership in California for us. So <laughs> yeah. thanks for that, Mike. We really appreciate it. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to hear about some sports action. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right. Well, it is time for sports, and we got our own Jack Inslee on sports. So, Steph Curry, there's the sports theme. Well, Steph Curry is uh, had a huge game last night. Huge huh? game last night. And uh, California listeners, stick with us because I have some some proud news for you, <laughs> you California listeners. There are good things happening. But you're right, Patrick. Uh, Steph Curry is incredible. He lit and, it up uh, in the third quarter. You know, while. Uh, Aisha Curry's husband, Steph, may be the NBA's MVP, and on his way to the second championship of his career, she, Aisha Curry, is scoring plenty of points all on her own. So Steph has become known not only as a a once-in-a-generation talent, but a family man, Patrick. You know, he often appears uh, alongside his wife in advertisements, and he famously brings his daughter, Riley, to the podium for post-game interviews. His wife, Aisha, has made the most of her publicity opportunities and now has landed her own show on the Food Network, as well as a book deal with Little Brown. And it doesn't stop there. This month, she partnered with GLAAD to raise awareness for food waste in the U.S. She also partnered with Michael Mina, a chef out in the Bay Area, for a barbecue project in his marina-based test kitchen. It's called International Smoke, and it'll open for customers on June 4th. So where does her passion for food come from? In an interview with Style Magazine, she said, I've had a passion for it since I was a little girl. My mom's Jamaican and Chinese. My dad is Polish and African-American. So I had a pretty diverse culinary background to work with. And I grew up in Toronto, which is a big, giant cultural melting pot. I started preparing meals for my family when I was 12 because both my parents worked. Aisha might have rapper Drake, of all people, to thank for this food career. In his single, Zero to a Hundred, he mentions Steph Curry by name twice and in a culinary light. Let's take a listen. I've been Steph Curry with the shot, been cooking with the sauce, Chef Curry with the pot, boy. 360 with the wrist, boy. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here, actually. There's the built-in food reference to Steph Curry's name, as in curry. There's the mention of 360 with the wrist, which refers to what's called the cooking dance. It's a dance that rapper Lil B invented and NBA player James Harden adapted as a post-basket celebration. It entails moving your wrist around in a 360-degree motion to simulate the act of stirring a pot and cooking. 
So, what does this have to do with Aisha Curry? As a response to the infamous Drake lyric, she created a viral video with her husband, Steph Curry, featuring the two of them in the kitchen, actually stirring a pot of curry. In this video, she raps her own lyrics. Let's take a listen. I'm the real Steph Curry with the pot. What? Stove is getting hot. What? Olive oil by the box. What? Avocados for the guac. What? Avocados for the guac and four million YouTube views later, Miss Curry now has a legitimate career as a food personality. Is her cooking worth the hype? Well, if you are in the Bay Area and don't hate us because of Mike Edison yet, check out the International <laughs> Smoke pop-up on June 4th at Michael Mina's Marina Base Test Kitchen to find out. The $45 four-course menu promises to be influenced by Chef Curry's Chinese, Jamaican, African-American, and Polish <laughs> roots. In the meantime, I'll be watching her husband cook on the court with that sizzling hot jump shot. So I've been working my ass off in kitchens for 23 years in anonymity. You have to go viral. You have to go viral. you got to marry a basketball player. Or get mentioned by Drake. Or get mentioned by Drake. You know what? If Drake was sitting right here in your chair, I wouldn't even know who he was. Soon soon getting mentioned by Jack will have the same effect. Jack, Drake, whatever. All right. Well, thanks, Deck. That was actually really interesting. Very interesting. Um, We're going to take another break. When we come back, uh, we're going to have an op-ed from one of our own Heritage Radio hosts. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network News from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Our op-ed this week comes from Chef Emily Peterson, hopes of Sharp and Hot on Heritage Radio Network, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Welcome, Chef Emily. Hey, thanks, guys. So I had a student in one of my classes this semester regularly videotape me for her YouTube channel. Buttering up my narcissism, she said she was aiming to be a star on YouTube. When I asked her a star for what, she replied, an organic vegan star. She was usually taping me saying something about raising my own chickens for slaughter. I can't begrudge anyone their desire to become food famous. I myself am in hot pursuit, and I have to remind myself that age and experience are good things, even if the cost is a pair of crow's feet. What I have to laugh at is how niche the stardom will be. I run up against the opposite. You're too much of a generalist, I've been told. You need to have a thing. My thing has been sustainable seafood for a while, compassionate workplaces, which for me has ultimately meant working for myself, and encouraging people of all ages to do what they love. Oprah is right. The universe will rise up and meet you. I've taught lots of classes filled with adults with extra expendable income, how to butcher chickens and break down lobsters, and at the end of every class, without fail, someone will come up to me with emotional eyes and say, I've always wanted to do what you do. How did you get to do it? And I tell them the truth. I haven't taken a vacation that didn't involve a tent since 2009. Most lose their tears instantaneously when they realize that the culinary life I've carved out for myself is not the glamorous one they've projected onto me. Sure, I've done some awesome stuff, but I do it because I love to introduce people to the sensory overload of food and cooking. The awesome stuff is just icing on the cake. When I think about my students, some of which graduating with $250,000 of student loan debt, I can't fault them for pursuing stardom because that's what looks like success. It looks like book deals and speaking gigs, and hopefully for me, it's that too. But maybe a piece of advice for the graduates. Earn your place as an authentic voice. Loving to eat out does not a food critic make. 
loving history and following careers and trends, leaving yourself enough space to learn so that when you stumble upon the fact that organic and vegan are mutually exclusive things, you adapt and change and grow into a person that other people want to listen to. And I promise I'm going to keep doing exactly the same thing. All right. Thanks, Emily Peterson. That was uh, really interesting. I ran into the same thing when I taught for 15 years at a major culinary school. Every single one of my students basically thought they would graduate and become a star or a four-star chef. And uh, it's actually a career that requires years and years and years of hard work. So. Who is that, Jack? Oh, Erica, sorry. What? <laughs> I just temporarily what forgot your name. <laughs> yeah, uh, anchor of the show. Thank you very much. Anyway, thanks, Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot here on Heritage Radio that was great. Network. Yeah. So uh, that wraps it up for us for the week. And uh, thanks for listening so much. If you have any ideas for stories or anything you want to say or contribute, you can let us know at info at heritageradionetwork.org. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.